Well, guys, this is the show that I didn't want to have to record. Not because I can't handle a loss to the 49ers. I expected that. But I also expected some signs that this roster was growing, that they could compete, some clues that things were coming together in a way that indicated that we were on the verge of maybe being a year away from seeing this team being able to contend. They certainly didn't come together last night. In fact, they fell apart. I believe now, firmly, more than I have in quite a while, that big changes are needed, either immediately or certainly in the offseason. So my thoughts on what those changes are, how likely they are to happen, and specifically what I think they need to be coming up next on this somber edition of Seahawks Forever. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. 31-13, the Seahawks lose on Thanksgiving night to the 49ers. Hopefully they didn't spoil your dinner or cause you to return it, for lack of a better term. I uh, felt like it could have been 62 to 13, though. Although there was a moment of hope early in the second half that maybe, just maybe, we were in store for a uh, massive comeback that obviously didn't happen. Thank you for joining me. I am Dan Viennes. You can follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Like this video, subscribe to the YouTube page if you would. And if you listen on audio, I suggest. Uh, considering subscribing on Spotify. It's only 99 cents a month right now, and you will get episodes completely ad-free. And as we head uh, into the off-season, just a, just a heads up, I am going to be doing more audio-only episodes on more of a daily basis throughout the week. And, uh, and so if you want to get rid of those pesky ads, consider subscribing. Also, if you uh, want to support me, you can buy me a coffee or a beer. Uh, at the link in the description. I want to start by saying this. When I say, and you can see it on the screen if you're watching YouTube, when I say Seahawks forever, I mean it. And when I say what has become sort of my mission statement or my proclamation, forever and always go Hawks at the end of every show, I mean it. And I believe that you can have it both ways when it comes to unconditional love. And that that means that sometimes, right? You've heard this phrase, I love you. I'm just not happy with your behavior right now, right? But but we don't live in that kind of society now, right? Thanks to social media, how we're all connected and hot takes and short attention spans and people digging for clicks and engagement. It's all or nothing. It's black or white. And so I understand that as I go through my thoughts on today's show, it's going to garner some immediate reaction from some of you, some knee-jerk reaction. You're going to accuse me of not being a true fan, of not really loving my team, uh, to which I would just say, go to hell. Nobody loves the Seahawks more than I do. I have a lifetime of commitment to it. From the day they were born, 
as evidence and shouldn't have to justify it. Although sometimes I catch myself doing that, trying to make a point before I realize that the people I'm arguing with <laughs> aren't, aren't capable of listening. And so I understand that. So as I go through some of these, you may think the things I'm saying are blasphemous, right? Um, disloyal. No, I love my Seahawks win or lose, but I want to win. And I want my organization to want to win. Somebody made an analogy last night that I saw that at first I dismissed. And the more I thought about it, the more I chewed on it, I woke up thinking about it today. That as I said at the top, I believe we, we have arrived at the time where we need to discuss big changes that it's that old definition of insanity, that if you continue to do the same thing over and over again, you can't expect different results. And that the sample size is large enough now for me personally that I need to let go of the idea that they're working towards improvement and it's going to suddenly click and it's going to happen. Um. But the analogy that was made was that of the Seahawks to the Mariners. That the Mariners have rebuilt to a point that the roster is good enough to almost make the playoffs, or in the case of two years ago, make the playoffs, but not go beyond that. That we all believe that just a couple of key moves here and there can put them over the top but that the organization now for, for two seasons, and we'll find out the offseason just started, but people are already jumping off the bandwagon, accusing them of not being willing to make those couple of key impact moves to put this roster over the top. And that the Mariners, as a result, are just going to mire in mediocrity when they could be a contender. My fear now is that's where we're at with the Seahawks that as currently managed, not constructed, it's a key point there I'm trying to make. I'm not saying as currently constructed. I'm saying as currently managed. Not just coached, but managed. This roster has a limited ceiling. This team has a limited ceiling, I'm sorry. It has a high floor, but a limited ceiling. The upside, to use a scouting term, doesn't seem to be there. Even though the roster is full of young players that have upside. So you can kind of see where I'm going with this. But before I get there, I'm usually when I look back at a game, I try to find some statistical context, right? Where is this team failing? How can it get better? Are there signs that it's it's getting better in certain areas? Um, I'm decided as I was watching last night's game to, for the most part, judge them solely by the eye test. From watching football for 50 years and watching the Seahawks for 40 years, I can't even do the math right now. <laughs> Just not in that place. 
let's see, so, so for 47 of those years, right? Did I do that right? Ish. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't grade my math uh, in the comments. We have bigger fish to fry. Um, seen good teams, seen bad teams, not just Seahawks teams, but, but around football. I know what good football looks like. I know what bad football looks like. I know what mediocre football looks like. I, I know what dysfunctional and improperly managed football looks like. And I, that's what we're seeing here. <sighs> Let's talk about the defense first. We were promised changes. We were promised improvement. And then moves were made to that end. Big moves, right? The entire defensive line was thrown out. Gone are Al Woods, Quentin Jefferson, Puna Ford, Shelby Harris. Gone. They signed Jaron Reed. They gave $53 million to Draymond Jones. They signed Mario Edwards. They trade a second round pick for Leonard Williams. They draft two defensive linemen. Just going to let that hang there for a second. Because they got dominated up front last night by a San Francisco offensive line that was missing a starter and had another starter just fresh back from uh, a toe injury that still limited him in practice and, and he, he was questionable up until game time. Dominated. They bring Bobby back. Presumably had two of the best young cornerbacks in football and you add Trey Brown into that. Some people thought they had a group of three of the better young cornerbacks in football. Or so we thought. And yet there is very little to no tangible improvement on that side of the ball. You could say that there is improvement. 2022, the Seahawks gave up an average of 362 yards per game. This year, that number's down to 349. Are we feeling those 12 yards? We were specifically promised that the run game would be better. That this personnel fit the scheme better and would execute the scheme better. 2022, Seahawks gave up an average of 150 yards per game on the ground. This year, 117. Improvement. 33 less yards a game. But they're also giving up 20 more passing yards a game. So it doesn't feel like it because we just saw, what's the measuring stick? It's how you stack up to the best teams in your conference and the best team in your division. Make no mistake, the Seahawks have tried for the last two years after the Russell Wilson trade to build this roster in a way that it could compete and match up with the 49ers. The Rams too. The Rams just aren't as advanced as the 49ers. They still beat us twice though. Swept us this year. Close games. Feels like we've, we've closed the gap on the Rams. But that was the message coming into the season, was it not? That was the question. Have That's the question I asked every one of my guests. Journalists, podcasters, former players, Paul Moyer, Ryan Leaf, Sean Salisbury. Have the Seahawks closed the gap on the 49ers? Yeah, yeah, I think they have. Another good draft. Went out and spent some money in free agency finally. 
A lot of good young players. No black holes on the roster. <laughs> they haven't closed the gap. December 15th, 2022. First game, uh, Seahawks facing the 49ers with Chris, after the Christian McCaffrey trade. McCaffrey goes for 108 yards rushing. Wild card game in January. Uh, that was the first game in December, by the way, at 49ers win, 21 to 13. Wild card game in January, a 41 to 23 blowout by the 49ers. McCaffrey goes for 119 yards on the ground. Then the offseason, major changes on defense. Oh, Jamal Adams back too. The run game's going to be better. We've closed the gap on the 49ers. Last night, Christian McCaffrey, 114 yards and two touchdowns. Felt like he could have gone for 200 that the, that the 49ers took their foot off the gas. Talked about that definition of insanity, right? You said do the same thing over and over again. You expect a different result. I think this, the leadership of this team is stuck in, in certain ways, in certain philosophies that need to be evaluated. They have advanced. I want to give credit where credit is due. Remember how much we used to beat up Pete Carroll for not being aggressive enough on fourth down? He's come around on that. But you could argue that he's had to because they've been so terrible on third down. But how about deferring every time they win the toss? Without a thought. They do it again last night. They win the toss. They, I know the analytics that because you have a chance to get the ball at the end of the first half and then you, you double up and you get a chance to open up. How about the fact that the 49ers offense is rolling, is stacked, is basically an all-star team. And that really the only chance you have to beat them is to hope that you get out on top. Also, what's the one thing we've seen out of the Seahawks offense this season? From time to time. Pretty good on their first drive. We've talked at length the last couple of weeks. How Waldron seems to be good on the script and then off script, not so good. So we go ahead and defer because that's what we do. And the 49ers march down the field like a hot knife through butter and score an easy touchdown. And really, right then, set the tone. They set the tone. And then as far as coordinating the offense goes, I've said for a long time, it's not just play design. It's having a feel and it's getting the most out of your personnel, putting them in a position to succeed, specifically your quarterback. Geno Smith hardly could practice all week because his throwing arm was injured. NBC showed us all those shots of their pregame interview with Gino uh, where he's on the table getting treatment like he's in an ER. Couldn't throw in practice until Wednesday. Didn't come out to warm up until 50 minutes before the game because he was getting last minute treatment. And what do they do? They come out early and have him throw 15 yard out routes against a team with a dominant pass rush and really good outside corners. Nothing stresses a quarterback's ability to throw the football more than an out route in the NFL. And that's what they have him doing. 
We hear all week long about how they're, they're excited to have Kenny McIntosh back, how explosive he is. And with the absence of Ken Walker last night that Pete said, quote unquote, he's going to move right to the front. How many touches did Kenny McIntosh have last night? Zero. Uh, can't establish a running game. They don't use the middle of the field uh, when last year that was something that Geno excelled at and that was something that was so refreshing for us to see because that was a blind spot of Russell Wilson's. Geno was good in the middle of the field last year. Not getting that opportunity this year. Everything seems to be to the sidelines or horizontally. Third downs are abysmal. Last year they weren't. Someone suggested to me, could it be that Dave Canales made that big of a difference as a quarterback coach? Because the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this year with Baker Mayfield at the helm are pretty good on third down. It's an interesting argument. Penalties are still an issue that goes straight to discipline. I mean, that that penalty on Trey Brown last night was absolutely brutal. Bear hugs George Kittle. In the end zone, on third and 15, when Purdy was going nowhere, gave him new life instead of 10-3, it ends up being 14-3. Just, we're not seeing these things getting better. And then Pete Carroll shows up on his coach's show every Monday and says, eh, it's not good enough. We've got to fix it. Not good enough. Got to fix it. Well, we're 10 games in, 11 games in, right? And here's, we've seen incomplete rosters, flawed rosters before under Pete Carroll get better as the season goes on and win games like this. Now, time flies. This is longer ago than I thought because it's fresh in my memory because I was at these games. 2017, Eagles come in at 10 and one. They're flying high. Carson Wentz is MVP. And the Seahawks dominate them at home and win 24 to 10. The next year, Kansas City flying high. Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, all those guys, they come in here. Seattle unveils the big nickel. Remember that? Akeem Hicks or Akeem King. That would have been fun to watch. Akeem Hicks come out of retirement, cover Travis Kelsey. Akeem King, safety playing slot, big slot, big nickel against Kelsey, pretty much taking him out of the game. Kansas City comes back uh, late to make it a one-score game, but really Seattle controlled that one, 38-31. Big win, those 2017-2018. Go look at those rosters. Go look at the rosters on defense. Flawed. Lacking things. Really only had two receivers on offense. Uh, Top tacklers in that Kansas City game. Guys like uh, Shaq Griffin, uh, Rasheem Green, Deion Jordan, Trey Flowers, right? You had prime Clark Reed Wagner, which ironically now <laughs> Clark Reed Wagner still around. We're back again. But there wasn't much else. Secondary stunk. Remember those Shaq Griffin, Trey Flowers years? But they found a way to win those games. 
and yesterday they were completely overmatched. And did you watch Dallas roll Washington yesterday? Do you do you think there's any chance Seattle's going to go to Dallas and and have an impact? Suddenly figure it all out and put it together? I don't. I don't. And I know <laughs> that some of you are going to react to this by saying I'm too negative. I've heard that earlier this year when I thought I was being positive. I literally had a game, can't remember which game it was. I did a five takeaways reaction show. Four of them were overwhelmingly positive takes on the game. It was one of the losses, I believe. And yet I still had people in my comments saying, man, this guy's negative. I would submit that I have been as positive and optimistic as most over the last 10 years since the Super Bowl that got away. I just think I'm reasonable and I think I've become more objective in my old age and I'm able to see things realistically and set emotion aside. You have to do that sometimes to win. How many times during that great run with the Patriots did we say, see Bill Belichick say goodbye to really popular players? Because it was the right thing to do financially or for other reasons. So that's all to set up this, basically. How do you fix it? What do you do now? There's three specific things. There's 30 things, <laughs> but mostly there's three. You can change the head coach. It's not going to happen now. And so we'll set that one aside. The question this offseason would be, what would it take for that to happen? I think it's, it's reasonable the Seahawks are going to lose their next three, so they'll be six and seven. But I also think that Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Arizona is not a very daunting final three. And that the NFC wildcard race, when you look at it outside Dallas, because uh, they're going to get the first wild card because Philly's not going anywhere, that it's still possible. They rally, make the playoffs. I don't care how bad things might be. I don't think Jody Allen has what it takes. I don't think he's going to, she's going to make that move. I think it would take Pete deciding he's just done. And stepping aside, someone said last night, well, John Schneider needs to grow some balls and show he can. John Schneider doesn't have that authority, you guys. John Schneider was hired by Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll is above him on the organizational flowchart. So maybe the season would have to go totally off the rails. Six and 11, seven and 10. I don't know. Even then, I think... Pete and John could sell Jody on a fresh start. So I don't see that happening. I don't. But I'll say this. For the first time in 14 years, I'm at a point where I think that, that we've maxed out what we can get from Pete Carroll. When I talked earlier about ceiling versus floor, that's Pete. I think he's always going to have a high floor. He's going to get the most out of his players. He's going to build a good culture. Players want to be here. 
for the most part, they'll beat the teams they're supposed to beat. You look back now, those six wins, we thought a six and three start was great, right? Those six wins, only one of those teams can be considered a good team, Detroit, and they got rolled by the Packers at home yesterday. The Packers, one of, I think, the youngest roster in the league and an organization that moved on from their Hall of Fame quarterback last year. So maybe the, maybe the Lions are a paper tiger. Some of you may get that reference. If you do, pop it in the comments. See if you know what I'm talking about. Don't Google it. <laughs> um, but I don't know, because like I've said, we, we've, if there's one thing Pete's consistently done well, it's bounce back from a bad loss. It's rally the troops when things are falling apart. And to just not be competitive yesterday and then show up for his coach's show today and just not have any answers, just kind of sound bewildered. Here's what I'll say about that. Again, it goes to where my heart is and where my head is. Mike Holmgren was a great coach. He took us to our first Super Bowl. He was forward thinking. He was considered a genius. He was an offensive innovator. But when it looked like the league had started to adjust and grow and develop and progress, and he didn't take that step with it, and the league kind of passed him by, figured out his system, and he was so stubborn that he wouldn't adapt his system. Once you could see that start to happen, it was over. Seemingly overnight. And for the last two years that Holmgren was here, I was saying, it's over. Loved Mike Holmgren, but it was time for a change. I love Pete Carroll. I want him to be around forever. I just don't think he's capable anymore of getting more than this out of this roster. It kills me to say that. But it's how I feel. <sighs> Sorry. Uh, number two. <laughs> yeah, I wish Pete could stay around forever. But sometimes you got to change. Number two, you can change the assistant coaches, right? We've tried that, first of all. That three-year sort of cycle and churn defensively. And again, the, the defense is marginally better this year. I would argue that I'm, I think I'm okay for the most part with the direction of the defense and that, you know, they keep us in games. They give us opportunities to win. They tried to last night, made a big play to start the second half. The deflection, Jay Reed, I think, with the deflection, uh, Jordan Brooks with the pick six. That was a big play. They tried to do some other things too, but the offense has to, has to sustain drives. And they're not. They're not getting better. Keep talking. We keep talking about third downs every Monday and it doesn't get better. 
And I just think Shane Waldron has met his match. We The league has found his blind spots. I'm so tired of the, the cute little formations and motions, the ring around the rosy thing with Bobo against the Rams. Just line up and execute and find something you're good at and do it consistently. Do it until the other team stops you. Run the football between the tackles. Use the middle of the field. Use your tight ends more. There's just no sense or feel. And, and the way that they game planned yesterday, given Geno might not be 100%, it's not doing him any favors. You want to come at me with Geno was a flash in the pan, one-year wonder. He sucks. First of all, I am just blocking people now on Twitter. If all you have is Geno sucks. If that's all you got, if that's your analysis, uh, I'm just going to block you. I like debate. I like informed, really uh, passionate, smart analysis. I love it. it. You disagree with me on something, but you come at me with passion and reason. I'll debate you all day long. At the end of the day, we're still going to be friends. You come at me with Geno sucks. I have no need for you in my timeline. Uh, you can win with Geno Smith. You can win with Geno Smith if you, if you use him properly and support him. You don't think the Cleveland Browns would rather have Geno Smith right now with that roster they have when Deshaun Watson went down? You don't think the Indianapolis Colts would rather have Geno Smith right now than Gardner Minshew? And the LA Rams, you know, we're down to Brett Rippey and you don't think they would have rather had Geno Smith? You don't think the Tennessee Titans would take Geno Smith right now? The Atlanta Falcons? Uh, you can win if you coordinate the offense well enough. Do you think Baker Mayfield is significantly more talented than Geno Smith? And that's why he's been on four rosters in the last 12 months. Or is it that he's finally playing well this year because he's being put in a position to succeed? You call the plays that he that he's good at, you stay away from his weaknesses and you support him. And also an offensive line that we thought was going to be greatly improved this year because the interior was supposedly improved uh, just really showed how how porous they are last night. And, and you talk about willingness to make changes. The fact that Jason Peters had shown over the last couple of weeks that he was your best right tackle on the roster at the age of 41. And then when he gets hurt yesterday, Forsyth just gets owned and Phil Haynes was terrible. Like at this point in the season, what are you playing for? Are you playing for next year? Play some guys that have a chance to help you next year. I'm done with Phil Haynes. If Anthony Bradford's healthy, play him. Full-time. Done with Evan Brown. He's been an upgrade over Austin Blythe. But if Ola Sagan, Ola Watimi, stronger, more physical, he's the future at center, play him. Done with Damian Lewis. Don't really want to re-sign him in the offseason. Looking forward to seeing what Abe Lucas can bring back 
against Dallas, although I'm not convinced he's 100% healthy and that that knee might need to be fixed long-term. Uh, there's issues there as well. And that offensive line is not given Gino any help. So you can consider a change. Pittsburgh just fired their offensive coordinator, Matt Canada. Doug Peterson took play calling duties back uh, after the offense wasn't performing there well, uh, well down there with all those weapons they have and ETN and Trevor Lawrence and Ridley and all those receivers. So we do see from time to time mid-season changes in that sense. And we've seen Pete fire his offensive coordinators. We saw him move on from Daryl Bevel. We saw him move on from Brian Schottenheimer, a guy that he had a long history with his dad, handpicked him, didn't really even have a hiring process, hired him, just chose him. Saw him move on from him. And then he hires Shane Waldron. Now remember at the time though, we believe Russell Wilson had a big part in that hiring, had a lot of say. And I felt like last year we saw Shane Waldron grow as a play caller. I thought, but man, this is the league of adjustments. There's some smart, 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 smart coaches out there. And when they find something that they think that you're weak at, they're, the good ones are going to attack it. And uh, Shane Waldron just hasn't been able to adjust back again to the league. And I just don't, I don't feel that he has that growth as a play caller in him. Do you have any options though? Yeah, you actually do there. Remember the Seahawks when Dave Canales moved on, hired Greg Olson as their quarterback coach, longtime Washington native, uh, go Kooks, former assistant on Dennis Erickson's staff. Uh, back in 89-90 in Pullman. Uh, went on to a long career in the NFL, including a couple of stints as offensive coordinator. And he's done okay. He was Gruden's offensive coordinator. was his last time he's held that title from 18 to 21. And he had some success there uh, with a roster that wasn't necessarily that talented, right? Derek Carr. He had Josh Jacobs later in that run. Uh, but all three of those years, the Raiders were just on the cusp of basically top 10-ish in yards per game. Uh, no, nothing. Didn't go back and look at, you know, about his scheme. I would assume he's a Gruden guy, so West Coast offense. Have no idea if he's been studying, developing new offenses, modern offenses. You know, something that concerned me, uh, and it only concerned me because of the recent results that I heard last week during the Rams game. Uh, they were talking to the broadcast about how Shane Waldron has been studying college offenses um, recently and taking ideas from them. And to me, that just speaks of a guy that's just, you know, throwing it against the wall to see if it sticks. Well, let's just try this. Instead of having some conviction about a philosophy and, and, and trying to succeed at that. Uh, Greg Olson, though, had a very interesting run as offensive coordinator with the Panthers in 15 and 16. Those are the Cam Newton years, obviously when it was after D'Angelo Williams had moved on and uh, Jonathan Stewart was the lead back there. Uh, they averaged 140 yards rushing in 2016 as a team. Uh, some of that was Cam obviously, but a guy that has a track record of running the football. And so if Pete did want to make a move now, 
he has a guy on staff that he could turn over play calling duties to that's qualified, that's done it. I don't think he will. I think Pete's pretty loyal. But I'll be shocked if this offseason, assuming Pete comes back next year, doesn't make a change in offensive coordinator. If he doesn't, well, this show is going to be pretty pissed. The host of this show, anyway. Uh, number three, you can change the quarterback. And, and obviously, this is going to continue to be an issue because it's the easiest thing to point out. It's the easiest thing for y'all to point to. And there is a case to be made that dynamic quarterbacks can overcome a team's weaknesses. We saw during prime Russell Wilson years from 16 to 20, we saw him do that time and time again, win games for us when he was at his best on really, really flawed rosters. And so, you know, Gino hasn't shown that he can be that guy. Things have to be clicking. It's got to get good protection. Running game's got to be going and the, and the game plan has to be sound. And you can win with them if you do that. But he's not a guy that can overcome all that stuff and win a game for you. Some of that is just lack of mobility and his ability to create on the run. But it's not all that. You know, some of the better quarterbacks at doing that aren't all that mobile uh, necessarily. But for, you can't do anything about that now. For now, Gino gives you the best chance to win. And I'm not a fan of the idea of, of you know, throw Drew Locke out there just because let's, Let's see. It'll be different. Maybe it'll be better. Um, I do believe that Geno still gives you the best chance to win this year. But the conversation moving forward is where's this organization heading? And if you wanna, if you wanna raise that ceiling, and if Pete Carroll's still gonna be around, then I think the only way to do that is, is you finally, finally, finally have to go out and do what I think the intention was when they made the Russell Wilson trade. Things just didn't work out the right way draft-wise and, and everything else. And then Geno surprised them with his efficiency last year. Um, you have to identify that quarterback, finally. And next year's a year to do it. They can do it. Pick-wise, you know, the way this season is trending, they're going to have they're gonna have a pick maybe late teens, early 20s. You can get a guy there. Or you have the ammunition to move up without having to sell the farm. You know, we've seen that time and time and time again over the years where teams move from the late 20s, early 20s, up into the teens to get a franchise quarterback. Where'd Mahomes go? 10. Kansas City moved up from the 20s to get him. Josh Allen went in a similar range. Justin Fields. I mean, the book is out on him, but that's another example of a team moving up where you don't necessarily have to get into the top five. You don't have to go for Caleb Williams, Drake May. You can if you want to. And I'm not going to get too deep into that now because this is a conversation we're going to have over and over and over again over the next oh, six, eight months, right? But if you, you know, because we don't know right now. We'll, we'll see how the draft order falls and how these guys fall after the combine and some of the consensus starts, starts to form. But if you have a guy, if you're drafting 18th, J.J. McCarthy looks like he's going to go seventh or eighth, and that's the guy you think can take you to the promised land, then you have the ammo to move up and get him. And this is the year it has to be done. I'm just going to say that on the record now. 
and we'll get after it in more detail as we get closer to the draft, and certainly draft season, we'll be looking at quarterbacks heavily. This is the draft. There are five, potentially six first-round quarterbacks in this draft. You might be able to stay put at 18 and get a guy. Right? There's Williams, May, there's McCarthy, there's Penix, there's Bo Nix, and potentially Jaden Daniels. He may not be in the first round now. He's super, super thin, and the passing acumen has just been... uh, a new addition to his skill set. But once he goes through the evaluation season, um, he sure looks like a big-time NFL quarterback now, more so than I ever thought he did at Arizona State before transferring to LSU. But he might get into that range as well. And then there's another group of guys, second, third round. It's a deep quarterback draft, but there's five or six you can get in the first round. Have to. Have to. I'll say it right now with a lot of season left. If we're sitting here next August and we're talking about a, a roster that's largely the same, and Gino's the starter under quarterback and Pete's back and Waldron's back, um, then I'll be right there on that train that a lot of you were on much earlier that there's only so far we can go. And I'm not necessarily saying that those of you who felt that way at the beginning of the season are super smart because you were right. I just think that came from a place of cynicism pain and disappointment, (laughs) Um, not necessarily astute analysis. Uh, But that's it, man. That's, That's the bottom line. I just think we've reached the end of the road for this regime. I think it's taken, I think they've taken it as far as they can go. Amazing job rebuilding this roster in the last two years after moving on from your franchise quarterback. And honestly, well, I don't even want to get too far ahead of myself. I was going to say something about the GM. Uh, well, hell, I don't want to teach you. Um, if there are big changes at some point, I have always, I've for years, um, even when I held out hope that that we could get Pete back to another Super Bowl, that uh, someday John Schneider will be able to hire Pete's successor. I want to see how he handles a coaching search. I do. I do. I have enough faith in him also in running a scouting staff and drafting, and I think there's been some influence from Pete, and so I think uh, a new head coach would give different influence. I'd like to see that. But I thought coming into this season that a younger, more talented, more balanced roster and an innovative OC would get the most out of this roster, and it hasn't, and it's a, it's a, it's a team that's regressing, and we don't see that from Pete Carroll teams, and that's what concerns me the most. Uh, my confidence level that it's going to turn around or suddenly click has changed uh, pretty dramatically in the last couple of weeks. Again, I didn't expect them to win yesterday, but I expected them to compete. As Pete says, always compete. Now we'll see. We'll see how competitive it gets. We'll see if some of those jobs are up for grabs. Reek Woolen gets benched yesterday for Mike Jackson because he can't tackle. Is he going to get his job back? Was that just to wake him up a little bit or, or is he going to open that competition up in practice this week? Um, right guard. What are we going to see there? I just, my confidence level's low, you guys. If you disagree with me, help me. <laughs> Tell me why I'm wrong. All right. How are you feeling? How was Thanksgiving? Did it ruin your dinner? I woke up at about 4 a.m. feeling uh, 
feeling pretty nauseous. And at, in the moment, I thought, well, it's too much rich food, too much white wine, but maybe a little bit of the Seahawks, too. Um, I'll be back in a couple days. We'll start getting ready for the Cowboys game. In the meantime, like the, these were global big picture issues I talked about, right? So, so now you know. Now you know where my head's at. Uh, but we're going to continue to approach the season the way we always do. And we're going to look ahead to the next game. And what can they do to try to be competitive in that game? What kind of changes do we want to see? And, and, um, and furthermore. And, and if you want to look ahead, I'm really surprised that the mock draft I did with Michael Thompson a couple weeks ago didn't get a little more traction. Didn't get more views. Maybe you're just not ready for that yet. But we took our first deep dive into the draft next year and what it might look like without any trades or anything, just without a second-round pick and two-thirds, and taking a quarterback in the first round. You want to check that out? I will put a card up above there. You can click on that or just go to the YouTube page. Please like this video, subscribe to the channel, subscribe on audio, and uh, hang in there. I'm okay. Got a little emotional today. I'm sure you did, too. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever, you saw I got emotional there, too. But remember, remember, the show's called Seahawks Forever for a reason. We're going to love our team, do or die. We're just going to analyze them. We're going to ask the right questions. We're going to try to find the right answers. Forever and always, go Hawks.